Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in and we've got so much to get through today. We always have, but we seem to have even more to get through today. Before I start, my regular reminder, next Monday, October the 19th, Rock and Roll Politics is live at King's Place, socially distanced or via a stream. And we will have the chance to delve more deeply even than we do in the podcast because we've got the bliss of time and the drama of a live event. And it just follows the pivotal EU summit at the end of this week where we will know, I suspect, whether Britain is to emerge from this drama with no deal or a deal of some sort. So there will be that to reflect on and, of course, the continuing moving drama of COVID, which I suspect will have moved again by next Monday. So you can get tickets to be live, socially distanced, but right there for the live event at King's Place or for the streaming tickets. And I know this podcast is global these days. I'm getting emails from people from around the world. If the time differences are weird, if you buy a stream ticket, you can watch it any time for a week. You can watch it live if you want or any time for a week. And that means you can watch it again and again. I mean, what a what a bargain. Anyway, that's Rock and Roll Politics, the live show, Monday, October the 19th. And before I get going, thank you so much for your brilliant questions. I've noticed there's a kind of theme running through the questions, nothing to do with politics, but what you're doing while you're listening to the podcast. Because I assumed a very young athletic audience all running 5K or 10K, because the duration of this podcast works perfectly for a 5K run or a 10K run if you're really fast. But I'm finding all kinds of activities going on whilst people listen to this podcast and I'll read some of them out when we come to the question section. The questions are also brilliant as ever. But yeah, it's going to become more of a sort of wellness, mindful wellness podcast with the activities people get up to whilst listening. They are intriguing. Some are running, I hasten to add, and that's exactly quite right. But there's some very other elegant pursuits or inelegant pursuits referred to in some of the questions. But before all of that, here are a couple of thoughts. It's very interesting with this COVID nightmare that Boris Johnson appears to be making precisely the same mistakes he made at the beginning of the pandemic in February and March, doing too little too late. It's really interesting that the scientists, some of whom misread the situation in February and March, have learnt from the past. It's one of the important skills of leadership to learn lessons, and very difficult to do, as I'll come on to in a second. But the sage advice to constrain far more widely than Johnson agreed to do shows an awareness of how this thing can spread and how it needs to be stopped. And Johnson's refusal to follow that advice, the advice in September that was published this week from Sage, shows that he returns to the mistakes of the past. It's a very common and interesting recurring theme with prime ministers. They become aware of mistakes and like a character in a film noir, return to their doom 
having escaped the first time and they make the same mistake again. Before we come on to Johnson, I've always been interested. The prime ministers of the 1970s all were aware of a terrible, fatal error in policymaking and all chose to make it like a kind of dark thriller again. So those prime ministers were Heath in 1970, then Wilson in the mid-70s, and then Callaghan. And each of them began their rule during that stormy, wild decade. Doesn't quite compete with what we're living through now. Actually, it doesn't at all. But it felt stormy and wild at the time. I'm, I'm too young to remember, but so I'm told. But anyway, in 1970, Heath came in dead against incomes policy, pay and incomes policy, where government determines the amount of pay that can be doled out, the pay rises. He was dead against it. But for good reasons, rather noble ones, as unemployment hit about a million, he panicked. He had been brought up in the 1930s and knew the terrible social and economic consequences of unemployment. As trade unions became more muscular, the miners, after the quadrupling of oil prices, started putting in big wage demands and were striking to try and get them. Heath panicked and introduced a pay policy, a very characteristically convoluted pay policy, a politically insensitive pay policy, and it brought him down. He called an early election because he was having problems implementing that policy, posed the question, who governs? And the voters said, not you. In came Wilson, who had made a great virtue during the election campaign in February 1974 that he opposed incomes policy, and in effect introduced one before he retired, exhausted, burdened by the terrible demands of leadership. In came Jim Callaghan. He didn't think he'd need a pay policy. He was from the unions. He had a rapport with the unions. Uh, and he was uh, ferociously opposed to pay policy in the early to mid-1970s. And then he panicked and introduced one and walked towards his doom. The winter of discontent was a row with the unions over his attempts to impose a pay policy. So each of them knew it would lead towards their doom and each of them chose the policy knowing what had happened in the past. And so we come to Johnson now with COVID. He, even he, has had time to reflect on the mistakes he made in February and March when he underestimated the scale of what was required. And he knows he made mistakes. You don't have to be a genius to recognise it. And yet, in September, when it was beginning to rage again, he chose the same course, to do less rather than more. And I suspect with the same consequences. He has chosen to guide the country towards another cataclysmic moment, and he chooses to walk towards his own equivalent of doom. It's too early on for him to fall over such a move, but I can tell you if things go badly wrong again, he will be deeply, deeply wounded. A figure whose authority has already been hugely called into question. But he's chosen it. He's chosen 
not to follow sage and people will be saying again soon indeed they're saying it this week it's too little too late the words that tormented him haunted him in april and may of last year are back because of the course he has chosen and it's interesting he is using the language of blair and the third way he's arguing that it's a balanced approach and of course these are nightmarish dilemmas but johnson at his press conference on monday said look some are saying don't do anything you know his libertarian wing of his parliamentary party which incidentally on the whole also comprise many of the hardline brexiteers and then he says there are people calling me to do nothing and there are people calling me to do more i'm taking a balanced approach trying to let the economy breathe and there was rishi sunak standing next to him and at the same time trying to save lives but there's something about the third way which is deceptive it sounds very comforting as if there's always a way through where you avoid taking a really tough decisive decision and you can bring all kinds of people with you by navigating between two conflicting demands there are two things about that third way first of all you have to be an ardent believer in it it might be a shallow philosophy but you have to believe it deeply and so tony blair was a completely committed third way he believed in it almost as a philosophy that he would see a dilemma and think right there's a middle way through here that i can keep murdoch and his newspapers and his readers on board but also keep most of the labor party together and a big tent of support will be sustained but on big big policy areas it didn't work even for a master of a third way like him so on iraq the third way did not work for tony blair some people say with blair that iraq was an aberration that he became evangelical and committed irrespective of electoral standing or any other consequence it's just not the case he tried his normal third way approach he decided from the beginning he blair with his obsession of avoiding labor's 1980s policy stances had resolved not to break with the u.s over iraq or anything post september the 11th or before but at the same time he wanted to take with him the internationalist wing of the labor party and progressive opinion so he found his third way yes i back the u.s but yes we will go to the u.n to seek a resolution backing whatever they decide to do in iraq he didn't get that resolution although he sort of pretended he had done and he was stuck he was with the u.s but without his third way he had tried and couldn't do it sometimes third ways don't work and with boris johnson he's not a natural third wayer look at what he's done with brexit it's the hardest possible brexit route he could have got an extension on brexit which it merited in the best of times the negotiation over a future trading relationship and all the rest of it security coordination demanded a negotiation of more than a year in the best of times uh, he didn't want it no we're out january the first we're out and these are the worst of times and still 
Britain is crashing towards that December the 31st deadline with either a flimsy deal or no deal. We'll know more at the end of the week with the EU summit. This is not third way politics, but on COVID, Johnson makes the claim, the balanced approach. And when you're not used to practicing it, you usually get these things wrong. When there's a sort of jarring twist in a leader's approach, you know something isn't quite working, isn't quite adding up. It kind of like politics is like music, and when the music doesn't flow and is discordant in a melodious piece, not that Johnson's leadership has been melodious, but you know what I mean, it doesn't work. But more than that, more fundamentally than that, when faced with these epic policy areas, you have to be decisive. You can't whirl around navigating a third way. There has to be clarity. What is the objective? Is the objective to suppress the disease, to get it back to the so-called R rate to below one? In which case the scientists are saying this is nowhere near enough. So is it the sort of Sunak let's live without fear approach in which case how and in what form without the nhs becoming overwhelmed and grotesque levels of contagion and death it's not at all clear the balanced approach might avoid or seeks to avoid alienating anybody but as blair discovered with iraq can end up alienating virtually everyone even those who coalesce behind you at first. And so I think he's making a mistake. I think he should have been much harder earlier on. Some of you might well disagree. And of course, it is very difficult. And there are economic consequences, whichever route is taken. This is as risky economically as a tough and much more widely applied set of constraints now in the hope that you get the economy going with a much more substantial and extensive testing regime. By the way, what has happened to that world-beating testing regime? That is the way out of this, as South Korea and other places have shown. And that route is not available in the UK for reasons that can be explored in a podcast or 25 podcasts in the weeks to come. So I think we're going to see, and it will begin this week, a sense that it's not enough and more measures announced and they won't be quite enough. And then gradually, but behind the curve, Johnson moves towards some kind of national lockdown, although I suspect it will be called something else, but too little, too late. Words that um, haunted him earlier in the year and he's chosen a route in which they can be applied again. These are strange times. Oh yeah, and on these weird times, Keir Starmer needs to do more. One of the arts of leadership in opposition is to give the impression always that you have a plan. That is a protective shield to give greater validity to your critique of the government. Starmer's critique of the government is brilliant. And, oh, my, you might have heard of me being texted. Keir Starmer, uh, no, 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 it's not him. Starmer's critique of the government, everyone agrees, has been highly effective. But when I heard any questions, I don't know if any of you heard it last week, and 
they had someone on from their front bench and she was saying, no, no, it's not for us to say what we would do. That's the government. Uh, we will critique the government. And there are too many plans out there for us to add our ideas. No. The art of opposition is to give the impression of a plan. And you can sort of see it by implication, you know, local testing regimes, much more involvement of local leaders, a more extensive economic package, but it needs to be brought together as a plan. And people like Starmer and other front benches won't be asked about it that much. They will be given the space to critique, which is what they want to do. But when asked, all right, then what will you do? You don't come up with the answer, oh, well, it's not up to us. Or, well, what, us? You know, what? You know, you have a plan. And it is impressionistic. And opposition politics is partly artistry. Actually, all politics is partly artistry. I mean, to give one example, Blair, when he was in opposition in the mid-90s, whether Britain should join the single currency was the raging issue. And Labour were as unclear as the Tory government and as internally divided. But Blair gave the impression that he had a plan. He said Labour would join the euro when it's in Britain's economic interests to do so. Now that raises about 25,000 questions. But it gave him the shield of a plan. Yeah, yeah, we're up for it. We will do it when it's in our economic interests. And this Tory government wouldn't even do it if it is in our economic interests. And then he could say, oh, yeah, but the Chancellor would, but not the foreign, you know, not, and you would torment the kind of divisions of the major government. It was a protective shield of a plan, but convincing enough for him then to have the space to torment Major with what Major and his cabinet were doing wrong and were divided over. Anyway, there are some kind of opening thoughts, but I want to get as quickly as possible to the brilliant questions that have been posed for this week and accompanying some of them, as I said at the beginning, what you are up to during the podcast. So let's go through some of them. Phil O'Dell has posed a question about Cameron. I don't know, Phil, whether you're reading uh, Cameron's biography. It's come out in paper, but if you are, don't bother, don't bother. Uh, if you read my book on prime ministers, there's a chapter on Cameron, and that really is it only merits that amount of time. Life's too short. But anyway, do you think, this is uh, Phil's question, do you think David Cameron regrets not staying? How would he have fared in getting Brexit done and dealing with COVID? Would he have even survived long enough to face COVID as Brexit got tougher? I think Cameron doesn't regret going. I think he regrets being kicked out quite as quickly in the sense that he thought he would be around for a few months while the Tories had a normal leadership contest. But Tories don't have normal leadership contests. They have very abnormal, weird ones. And that one, when Theresa May won, lasted about 10 minutes. And like the last scene of Hamlet, all the bodies were on the floor except for May. And she strolled into number 10 and Cameron was out very quickly. But he wouldn't have survived. He couldn't have survived. Uh, he had no authority to survive having called and lost a referendum. I think in an ideal world, if he were there, ideal being a sort of slightly odd word because he, he was a poor prime minister, he was an insubstantial, shallow prime minister, but 
he, I think, has publicly said that he would have gone for the Norway option and assumed that would be the option. Well, I can tell you we're far, far away from that. Paul McFarlane actually asked a question, kind of relates to what I was saying at the end of my opening spiel. Uh, well, it's Keir Starmer related. Being forensic and exposing this government's incompetence is great, but will Keir Starmer's clearly set out what where he stands on other areas and will that result in him losing support from Labour voters and trade unions and doesn't the fact that Labour had lost Scotland and is very unlikely to get any many seats there in the foreseeable future mean it's unlikely Labour will be elected into government at the next election big big themes about Labour part of the art of leadership I mentioned one in opposition which is always to give the impression you have a clear sense of where you're going on any big issue is also to form policies to articulate values that unite as much of your party as possible whilst appealing to a wider electorate. Now, Starmer doesn't actually have to do that yet. The pandemic is so overwhelming that he has the space to do that. But it's a space that faces all opposition, a challenge that faces all opposition leaders. And it will be a key test. This leadership business is really tough. And I think that's probably the toughest of the lot. Can Labour win without Scotland? Starmer has publicly said they can't. They need to make gains in Scotland. How? Well, that's another whole podcast, Paul. And the answer is by no means clear. Ruben Chaplin asks about Corbyn. Oh, to what extent should uh, Starmer worry about the revolt on the left, as reflected in Unite announcing they weren't going to pay as much money to Labour and is there a historical precedent for this e.g. Kinnock, Blair, Wilson? Well that is interesting because each of them responded differently. Kinnock had to take his party on, he had no choice, they had been slaughtered when he became leader in 1983 and he took them on very ostentatiously and retrospectively has gained admiration for his political courage. But at the time, it meant that he was so much at war with his party, he didn't appear prime ministerial by 1992. Kinnock has reflected this himself. And all those expressing admiration for his courage now were not necessarily doing so at the time, including Tory colonists saying he's unelectable, vote Tory. So there are risks in doing it. Blair and Wilson actually didn't have to do that much of that kind of thing because... Labour had been out of power for so long by the time they became leaders, respectably Blair 94, Wilson in 63, that Labour were willing to accept a lot. Now, is Starmer in that position? He needs to find out or decide quite soon. But as I said earlier, not yet with the pandemic raging. He needs to get the politics of that right and the politics of Brexit right. They are the two overwhelming themes for now. A great question from Jack Murray uh, Dixon. Oh, he actually makes a point, but before he does, he says, I'm one of your 10k running podcast listeners here in Midlothian. Well, Jack, you must run quite fast, although they're going on a bit longer now with the questions. But congratulations on the 10k running in Midlothian. I bet you're running in beautiful scenery and he says, as a left-leaning supporter of competent governance in Scotland, I support independence 
as do a majority of my compatriots. So he makes a series of points, one of which refers back to something I was saying, I think, last week or the week before. You mentioned, you think, the UK government and the Scottish government should pre-negotiate independence before a second referendum. This will not happen because the UK government would inevitably play a much harder ball to make independence a less appealing prospect. Why should the Scottish government accept that narrative? Now, that is a good point, and I've thought a lot about that as well, actually, Jack. But I think the answer is twofold. One, in the end, it's in the hands of the British government. So if the British government want to make the details of independence part of the package, it has every right to make that proposition. The Scottish government can turn it down, but then will they get their referendum? The second point is, and I don't know whether you agree, but I just think referendums on generalities are really dangerous. You know, they become so abstract, so romanticised, so far removed from reality. I mean, look at Brexit and the reality as we collide or towards December the 31st with none of the things that were promised in the referendum on Brexit. I'm not a fan of referendums, Jack, anyway. And I can completely see why at the moment when you see the kind of wacky governments at Westminster that the electorate puts in place, why independence soars in Scotland. But there are deeply complex issues involved and referendums are not great for complexity. Uh, Jack raises a series of brilliant points, which I will return to some others on another occasion, if that's okay, Jack, because if I discuss them all now, you'll have run a marathon at least. So uh, to go to another question, thank you for that one. Roger Patterson, I'm a regular listener to your podcast, but I also listen to others such as Talking Politics. I wouldn't bother with that one, Roger. Life's short. Uh, Please stick with this one. But anyway, on one of their episodes shortly after the Brexit referendum, the question was asked, how does populism end? So my question is, how does populism end? Does it end when it wins, or do we have to go the full Venezuela kind of sequence, um, which we haven't got time to explore today? It's such an interesting question. And all I would say now, I've been thinking about it a lot, is that end is the not the right term. In, in politics, nothing ends abruptly. People, for example, when Thatcher fell in November 1990, you look back at the commentaries, the end of Thatcherism as well as her, and it wasn't the end of Thatcherism. And I think even if Trump falls, some of the populism that has swamped the United States during his leadership will still be in place. Some of the assumptions and attitudes that propelled Trump to power, which of course explains why Johnson is in power and why other populists have risen sometimes will outlive the individual populace. In the end, populism falls when it is challenged by events rather than the rise or fall of individuals. So the populism around Brexit is going to be challenged over the next 12 months when some of those who believed that they were taking back control of their lives or having agencies giving them control, when they find what the reality is like then the rhythms of populism are challenged. But it's a deep question, probably one for about 25 podcasts. 
Uh, some of the questions have been asked for the live King's Place stream event, and I will get to them at the live stream event. But here's one from Dominica, who, oh yeah, now, Dominica, while she's listening, is doing her homework for a lace-making class at the Conservatoire de la Dentelle in Bayeux. I told you we're, we're global. This is the European dimension. Dominica asks, in the context of identifying, admitting to, and then avoiding further catastrophic errors, is there any possibility that the forthcoming rapid cross-party investigation into the UK's handling of the coronavirus crisis will enlighten or inform future policy? Well, there will be an investigation into the UK's handling, uh, probably in about 25 years' time. I find with these inquiries, I think the remit of this one is exactly as you say, will be what are the lessons learnt? Because the government will not want the remit to be what mistakes did the government make? But whether or not we get a clear sense of what happened and why, and whether there are political repercussions from that, I doubt. When you look back at previous inquiries, the political consequences have been virtually nil. The one on Iraq emerged long after Tony Blair had been in power, to give one example of many. So we're running fast out of time here, and you'll all be finishing your 10Ks, etc. Mark Goldberg asks, oh, Mark said, I don't run anymore and try to stay away from crisps. That's a reference to a listener last week who said he listens to the podcast whilst eating crisps, something I can completely relate to. The larger the packet, the better. And Mark says he loves them too. But he says, oh yeah, he does a two-hour daily hike over Hampstead Heath listening to the podcast. It doesn't take two hours, but maybe you spend the other hour or so reflecting on all the themes and questions that have been asked. He says, I've long been interested in the idea of the universal basic income, which is where everybody gets this basic income from the state, and wonder whether the time has come whereby a Tory government flirting with furlough payments and whatever the latest lockdown subsidy is called, but for whom the UBI might have been political anatomy, might just be creating the ground for the next Labour or Labour Lib Dem government to go the whole hog. And with what consequences? Yeah, well, it's it's very interesting. By the way, the, the universal basic income, as Mark will know, is uh, there are some right-wing governments very interested in it as a way of sort of streamlining the whole approach to welfare, making it simple and accessible. So it's not just on the left. I think Starmer, if I were to guess and look three or four years ahead, will be too cautious to embrace it. But as you suggest, there are a sort of panoply of initiatives in place at the moment which is close to it. So I think, well, let's let's keep that one under review and I'll, I'll spend more time on, on, on that because it's a very interesting one. It is one way in which, at a point where the state is so fractured and people feel so disconnected from it, you know, that phrase, left behind, which was used in relation to Brexit in Europe, has much wider implications. And, of course, one way to connect, a very, very important word in politics, connect, would be for the state 
to provide a universal basic income. So there is this constructive relationship from the very beginning of um, the people receiving these um, kind of things. One last question from today. We've got loads of others, which I promise you we're going to get through one way or another. It's from Susan Nicholson. Oh, Susan says, I'm not running while listening, probably just pottering. Well, that's fair enough. Her question, who should we be watching in the Tory party? When this cabinet of all the sycophants has to crumble, who with a bit more brains and integrity is waiting in the wings to take over? Obviously, I'm assuming A, Johnson, Gove and Cummings would let such people in and B, such people exist. Two quite big assumptions. There is no appetite for cabinet government. This number 10 is a very controlling number 10. There have been no equivalent to it, actually. Thatcher, who appeared dominant at the time, was a kind of believer in cabinet government, and she was surrounded by heavyweights who disagreed with her on Europe and economic policy. You wouldn't get that now, I can tell you. Blair wanted a kind of number 10 Johnson has, but he had to face Gordon Brown, who was a sort of form of internal opposition of a formidable kind. This number 10, which is the vote leave campaign in number 10, they listened to Gove from the cabinet. Sunak has started to become assertive over COVID, as we've been discussing in this podcast, persuading Johnson to go much lighter, too little, too late. And I wonder whether the golden boy image will begin to be disturbed in the coming months. The caricature of a chancellor is nearly always, wow, he's brilliant, or my God, he's deeply, deeply flawed. It was very interesting following Brown's career. The wild oscillations were incredible. You know, he was on a high one minute, had to come in to save Blair in the 2005 election campaign because he was so popular. Next minute, he was really unpopular. And I think Sunak has been watering it on water, but not that that is not the fate of a chancellor for very long. So this is a very controlling number 10 without strong cabinet ministers. So I'm afraid your A and B kind of answer themselves, really, that, that they will not welcome a wide range of heavy hitters. And I don't really see them existing. Heavy hitters don't emerge from nowhere. They grow. They're tested in kind of different ways, whether it's battling it out in internal party politics or in a cabinet post where they are suddenly tested and emerge stronger. And at the moment, you don't see that happening. But I'll keep you informed. I'm always looking out, as we all are, for those who have these elusive, um, sometimes hard to define leaderly qualities. Now, there are a load more questions, and please keep them coming in in the coming days, because these days, I think this week, this week of this podcast, is the biggest week since the general election in December, where the two biggest policy areas since 1945, COVID and Brexit, reach new complex peaks of significance. So we've got loads to discuss. Just a reminder again, 
King's Place on Monday, October the 19th. And if you buy a streaming ticket to watch with a glass of wine at home, you can still ask questions. They'll all appear on a screen while I'm on the stage. And obviously, they're live at King's Place. We're completely interactive, but socially distant, etc., etc. So that's the Monday after the make or break Brexit summit. And with all these other themes whirling around. And I say more questions next week. I'll just shut up and focus on the questions. But also I'm going to read some of them out at the uh, streaming, not the streaming, live at King's Place on Monday. I'll be reading out some of these questions too and answering them in the second half of that live show where we delve deep and for longer. Real kind of, you could run a marathon in that time. Anyway, thanks so much for listening in this one. Oh yeah, somebody told me, I always forget to do this. Please leave a review, uh, you know, those star reviews if you're listening on the kind of iTunes version of this. For some reason, it's good to have that. So I know some of you have, I'm really appreciative. And if more of you could, that would be great. And see you next week. Thanks so much for your questions. I hope you finished your run if you've been listening to this running if you have you might have a pen to hand if not at about 39 minutes in i'm reading out the email if you want to send the uh, questions or make any points uh, some of you've made some brilliant points and i'm going to get to more of them next week it's steverick14 at icloud.com that's Steve Rick, S-T-E-V-E-R-I-C, the number 14, at iCloud.com. That's it. What a week coming up. Keep safe. See you next week. Thanks a lot. <laughs>